At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Lunar New Year is one of the most important celebrations among East and Southeast Asian cultures. The New Year's celebration, which began yesterday, is observed over several days, and during the period... We'll have some features coinciding with special events here on City Lights. For now, we wish joy and good luck to everyone celebrating the lunar year of the rabbit. In the Vietnamese zodiac, this is the lunar year of the cat. Now, from Asia to Africa... The female a cappella quintet from Zimbabwe, Nobuntu, has a style that spans a range from traditional Zimbabwean songs to Afro-jazz to gospel. Their music conveys the importance of social change. And later this hour, we'll hear how they honor heritage in their songs, while updating tradition to resonate with a younger audience. Plus, speaking of comedy, our series today features Atlanta comedian Amanda Marks and music contributor Vaughn Phoenix stops by with this month's edition of Punk Black to Go. First... With the Respect for Marriage Act recently passed by Congress, the rights of LGBTQ plus Americans inch closer to equality, though much still remains to be done in welcoming and protecting members of the queer community. Out Down South is an outdoor exhibition celebrating Atlanta's LGBTQ plus history through portraiture and oral histories told with local queer heroes' own voices. And the show is on view through October at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Co-producers Rachel Garbus and Samuel Landis join me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so Thanks, much for Lois. having us. Yeah, we're so excited to be here. Well, what inspired you to create this show centered around storytelling from Atlanta's LGBTQ history? Uh, I'm a little bit of a history nerd myself. And, you know, when I first came out, you know, I feel like I looked for everything queer and LGBTQ that I could consume to really kind of help inform who I was because, you know, growing up, we aren't, you know, especially here in the South, I, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and I know that I wasn't taught any LGBTQ history in school. And I, I found this amazing podcast called Making Gay History, which is Eric Marcus he recorded all these amazing oral histories to inform a book that he was writing a couple decades ago. And then when podcasts became a thing, he started re-releasing these oral histories as podcast episodes. And these were just so moving to me and they made me laugh, often made me cry, and just made me feel so connected to this community that I felt like I knew so little about. And so 
I was formerly at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. And around the time that I started as a designer at the center, I got to work on a project with Julie Road, who is one of the folks that we do show in the exhibit. And I got to work on a project with her where she, uh, the center at the time was thinking about possibly acquiring the AIDS quilt and the names project. And so we, I worked on a proposal with her and it just was such an amazing experience because I had been learning about the AIDS quilt and learning about AIDS and Cleve Jones and now to meet this person who like had worked with Cleve Jones and had taken care of the quilt and to find out that it had lived here in, in Atlanta and I didn't even know about it. I just was kind of dumbfounded that it just opened my world to see that we have our own history here in Atlanta, our own LGBTQ history. And so it's really my relationship with Julie Road that kind of got the idea rolling for me as I, I went to a panel that she spoke on. And I just was like, I wish I could make all my friends like come and sit down here and listen to these stories because I think that they're so important, not only just to know our history, but to find a source of strength and resilience. As you said in your intro, you know, we're still facing you know, the, the world is not perfectly equal just because we have marriage equality. And, you know, we still need to find sources of strength as we continue the, the fight for equality and equity. And so another friend of ours, who's actually the person that connected us, Rachel, another Rachel, she came to me with the idea of doing an exhibit. And it's really all I needed to get me started because I had been thinking on this for a while. I just needed the impetus of somebody else coming to me and saying that they would do it with me. And so that's what really got us started. She then connected me with Rachel Garbus, um, which has been amazing because Rachel Garbus does oral history work and has that background in journalism that I don't have. And so Rachel and I have gotten to really work together, you know, these past couple years on, you know, I bring my curiosity for history and experience with design and working creative fields and, and Rachel brings her journalism and oral history experience and together we've gotten to create this really beautiful project where we have both the exhibit and as well as a podcast. Will you describe the outdoor space that hosts the exhibition and how visitors may interact with it? Absolutely. So it's out actually outside. So I definitely encourage you to buy a ticket, go into the center because there's a lot of other beautiful exhibits in there. And if you haven't been, I especially encourage you to. But the beautiful thing about this exhibit is it's actually accessible and free to the public, whether or not you go into the center. It's outside around the fountain that you can see if you're driving by Ivan Allen, if, if you're downtown around the World of Coke or aquarium, you can drive by and you see these stanchions that are outside around the fountain. And in each each stanchion, we have these beautiful portraits that are have been taken of these, our honored subjects, as we call them, who are people who have had a role in furthering LGBTQ culture or rights, or have had an impact on our community somehow. So people from Kim Jackson, the first out lesbian state senator, to Julie Road, as I mentioned before, to Monica Helms, who is the creator of the trans flag, who lives up in Marietta, which most people don't realize. And so you have these beautiful portraits, and then beside them you have a QR code that you can scan and listen to a little snippet of their oral history. So we've selected a story for each of the folks from the oral history that we did with them that you can listen to. So it's a really beautiful interactive experience where you get to see a beautiful photo of them, but also get to hear a little bit from them in their own voice. Rachel, would you talk about the role of oral history in Out Down South? Yeah, I'd love to, Lois. As Sam said, I came in with the oral history background, and I'm also a journalist, so I love stories. I've just everything that I do is just touches on people's stories in some way because I just can't get enough of them. So, one thing about oral history, you know, it's this incredible primary source material we have for understanding how people experienced history. And as Sam mentioned, there's so much LGBTQ plus history in the South that often goes overlooked, sometimes because people in power have not 
cared to share those stories or have not even known that they existed. So you just have these incredible treasures of stories and oral history is a really amazing way of gathering them. But what can be frustrating is that so many oral histories get recorded and then they get archived. And while they're very well preserved by amazing archivists all over the Southeast and all over the country, we have amazing archivists here. They so often just exist in an archive and don't have an opportunity to be shared. So what really drew me to this project was the opportunity to really bring those oral histories out from an archive and present them to the public in an accessible way. So each oral history is quite long. You know, they range anywhere from two hours. You know, if you're really going to sit down and take a, a whole oral history of a person's life, you could go multiple days, sessions, six, eight, ten hours. But we really pulled from these oral histories, some of which we did and some of which already existed in archives around the city. And transcribed them, listened to the whole thing, and pulled out about somewhere between a minute and a half to sometimes three to four minutes of a single story, edited very lightly just to make sure that people could really understand the context of where it was coming from and really engage with it while they're there. And because of these QR codes, people are able to do that on their smartphones, which I think creates this really amazing opportunity for people to just stumble across this exhibit, scan a QR code out of curiosity, and then hear this story told in somebody's own words, which, you know, as you all also, I think, share my love of stories, hearing somebody tell a story from their own life in their own words with their own dialect and their own way of remembering, I, I think is so powerful. And it really creates a completely different way of engaging with history. So I thought that what we created here was an opportunity both to showcase these amazing portraits, these beautiful visuals done by LGBT plus artists connected with these stories that really touch deeply on people's personal lives. On City Lights, we recently had a conversation with Grant Henry, the owner of Sister Louise's Church of the Living Room and Ping Pong Emporium. Yes. And one thing that stood out in our conversation with Grant was his lifelong deep investigation of religious faith. He's a former seminary student who never became a minister, but nevertheless considers his bar, irreverent though the aesthetics may be, he considers it a kind of church, a safe space for everyone to come and experience community. How have others featured in this exhibition similarly grappled with religion? That's one of the really beautiful threads that I have found um, with this project is that faith is an element that really is so important in so many of the lives of the folks that we interviewed and just that we've included in the project. So, you know, we we've included Rabbi Lesser, who is an openly gay rabbi here in the city. Of course, Senator Jackson, who I mentioned before, is also a reverend, a, an ordained minister within the Episcopal Church. And she also serves, I believe, at, with the Church of the Holy Ground, I believe is the name, and where she ministers to the unhoused community here in Atlanta. So it's been really beautiful. I think that there's that is a really special, unique thing about this project taking place in the South, is that so many, whether these are folks that have lived and grown up in the South or are transplants here, faith is so often a connection point, I think, for Southerners. And that comes out in a lot of these stories is their own, you know, investigation of the faith that maybe they grew up with and the faith that they have now. And so that's one of my favorite parts as, you know, I grew up very conservative and Christian, and that has been a part of my own journey of investigating what, what I believe now. And so I've, I've found it to be really beautiful in the stories of the other folks that we've included in the project. I had a quick thought about that because, yeah, I love what you said about that, Sam, and the ways that that's particular to the South. I'm, it's reminding me of in our oral history with Rabbi Lesser, he talked about the ways that in the South, marginalized communities, be they Black communities, Jewish communities, queer communities, have really understood innately that they can't survive separately, that part of 
advocating for one group means building coalitions with each other. And that's something that Southern marginalized communities have always really understood innately. And I think that really comes through in a lot of these individual stories where there's been so much coalition building and faith has been a really grounding part of that. So I think that does help tell this really specific part of this Southern story. And also the fact that you know, when you're thinking about who to interview and, and how to showcase these stories, some of these people are very well known already. So we wanted to highlight, you know, people who haven't had an opportunity to showcase those stories, but also people who are using their positions of power to really hold those doors open wide for people to come through and have a voice and, and share in that power. I think that was really important to us in selecting who we interviewed here. Oh, and it's so heartening. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes discussing the National Center for Civil and Human Rights exhibition Out Down South with co-curators Rachel Garbus and Samuel Landis. Another notable figure featured in your exhibition is Dee Dee Shambly, the first black trans woman to be honored at the White House. Will you share her story with us? Yeah, I I did. I was honored to sit down for an oral history with Dee Dee. Really, truly one of the most meaningful and memorable experiences of my life as an oral history maker, but also as a person. Dee Dee has had a truly incredible life, and she is just such an example of a person who never stopped pushing those doors open. And once they were open, keeping them wide for other people to come through. She came out as a trans girl in her teens in a place and time where that was extremely dangerous to do so. She suffered so much horrific violence and mistreatment by the police and being, you know, thrown into prison for doing sex work, which was the only thing she could do to survive at the time. And then being housed with men because the criminal justice system didn't respect her gender identity to surviving HIV AIDS when so many people around her were were dying I, just the way she describes it I just I, you can't even imagine the horror of that time living in the middle of it and she really thought she was going to die but she didn't she's been living with HIV as a survivor for many decades now and she's really become an advocate for trans women of color for the HIV AIDS community she La Gender Inc. is her nonprofit that really started as a mutual aid organization. I think it's a really powerful example of people who really came together when there were no other services available to them and just really built an organization based completely on what does our community need? How can I help my sisters? How can I help my neighbors? And has really built it into this really successful, thriving organization. And she has a big community of trans women of color, some of whom are her daughters. She's really created a space for them where they feel safe and empowered and has really been a mother to them. And yeah, I believe it was 2008, the Obamas invited her to the White House. And it's really an amazing story. You'll hear it on the podcast. She's our first episode. The first time she came, it was very poorly organized and she did not feel like they treated her very well. So she called the White House and told them so. She said, this was, you know, not what I expected. And they were like, oh my goodness, Miss Shambly, we're so sorry. And they brought her back oh. <laughs> along with a few other people that they had invited. And just she had a completely different experience. So she tells that story way better. You'll have to hear it on the podcast when it comes out. It's really funny. She is really something else. One more reason to love the Obamas. <laughs> Absolutely. Or their staff, whoever <laughs> it was uh-huh. who realized the error. You mentioned Monica Helms, the creator of the now instantly recognizable trans pride flag with its blue, pink, and white stripes. Monica became a trans activist after years of service in the Navy as a nuclear submarine tech. I'm eager to hear more about her journey from an overwhelmingly conventional male environment to her transition and role advocating for trans rights. Yeah, I mean, she is one of those people that, you know, when I found out again that she was living up in Marietta and she had created this flag that has become this symbol of hope and 
for so many people, like you said, it's instantly recognizable anywhere. And, you know, I loved getting to sit down and record her oral history. It's actually one of the first that I got to do with Rachel's help. And she talks about how she was living in Arizona at the time. And I, I believe it kind of stemmed from when she met the creator of, I believe it was the bisexual flag. And there was this conversation where she was kind of encouraged, like, why don't the why don't trans people have a flag and why why don't I just make that and I just love that it came from like as simply as that just like this doesn't exist and it should exist so I'm gonna I'm gonna do it and she tells in her oral history which you'll get to hear a little bit in if you go check out the exhibit or if you um, listen to her episode when the podcast episode comes out her experience of getting it printed and then you know, it, going to, I believe the first pride that it was shown at was in Arizona. And then just like how she began seeing it pop up all over the country and the rest of the, even pictures of it around the world, which I just can't imagine, you know, the pride and that feeling of, you know, creating something that you put down on paper and all of a sudden you're seeing people hold it up you know, around the country and around the world and seeing that it brings so much hope to so many people, especially a community that is so, you know, has often been forgotten even by the LGBTQ community. And we, we I think, are doing a lot of work in recent years to correct that. But trans people have been at the forefront of this fight for so long. If going back to Marsha and the gay liberation movement in New York and it's beautiful to see them finally getting to take their rightful place of honor for all the work that they've done to pave the way for us and to, to stay in the fight. Like, you know, Rachel just shared about Didi. You know, these are both women who are active still now in the community and continuing to do work for the trans community. The portraits on display are striking and beautifully captured by different photographers. How did you source these? Well, thank you so much, Lois. I, I also think it came out so well, and it was really fun to have all these different photographers because each one met individually with the subject that they photographed. So they really together created their own, you know, they picked the place, they picked the design. So each one brings out sort of a different thing. One of our great partners is Wussy Mag, which is like a local queer kind of niche culture magazine. I'm the culture yes. editor there. And John Dean, who I think maybe you've talked to John. Yeah. Yeah. We love John. He is the editor in chief there and he knows everybody. I mean, if you, I've never met a better event producer in my life. John, thank you for all that you do. He's been really amazing partner for us here at this project. So, and he knows a lot of photographers. He's a photographer himself. So he helped connect us with some. Sam, I believe some of these were your friends. Some of these were my friends. It was once we realized that this was how we wanted to do this, to assign a different photographer for each subject. It was just such an exciting opportunity to both give work to our queer artist friends who I always want to support and highlight and just a really awesome opportunity to figure out who to connect with whom. I connected my friend Karen Shacham, who's one of our photographers, with Lorraine Fontana, who's an amazing organizer, just really tireless supporter of all kinds of marginalized causes. And I just knew the two of them would hit it off. And they ended up getting dinner after their photo shoot because they were having such a great time just to talk some more. So that was a really beautiful thing that came about from this. The exhibition represents a partnership between the National Center for Civil and Human Rights and the Atlanta LGBTQ plus history project. Rachel, would you tell us more about the work being done at the history project, which you founded? Yeah, I mean, Sam and I really found it together, really with this vision of gathering, preserving, and sharing queer stories from Atlanta and beyond in the Southeast. So we have a partnership with Georgia State to archive all of the work that we do to make sure that it gets preserved forever for future generations. And really with a mandate to go broad, go deep with the stories that we're gathering to really give opportunities for people who haven't had their stories 
you know, listened to, haven't had an opportunity to share them. And for me, I think, and I think Sam feels the same way, oral history is really about honoring people. It's about creating a quiet space where others listen. And if, you know, I just seeing the way that people light up when that space is created for them is like that moment enough is just enough to keep me going doing this work forever. So I think for us, the history project is really about giving those spaces for people to share their stories and also creating spaces like this exhibit at the Center for Civil and Human Rights and our podcast out down south to really bring them to the public so they can hear more about them. I'd, I'd love to just jump in here and, you know, I, I especially want to make sure that we pay homage to all of the work that's being done in the South and in Atlanta and Georgia already. There are a ton of amazing, great archivists like Dave Hayward, who you have interviewed in the past, I believe, Lewis, yeah. who do a lot of amazing work around archiving, especially papers and documents. And there has been some oral history done, but we really felt that, and, and we've gotten to use some of those oral histories that already existed at Georgia State and other places but the part that we felt that we could bring to the table was that link of sharing it with people, especially with younger generations who, you know, grew up with podcasts. And so it's something so easy and intuitive to just, you know, open your iPhone and go to the podcast app and you can start listening. And so, you know, we really wanted to make these beautiful stories accessible, as accessible as possible to folks so that you know, they can find, like I said earlier, strength and hope and resilience in these stories for their own life. Oh, I think that's such an important point you make, Sam, about, well, not necessarily passing the baton, but now honoring a younger generation as well as realizing who set the foundation for it. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I feel like it's interesting because we started this project before, you know, these bills started popping up across the country, but it's been amazing just the timing of it that we, you know, there's these bills like the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida, and there's all these anti-CRT bills and bills against trans kids playing sports. And, you know, it's felt even more important this work to highlight these stories that, you know, already aren't, for the most part, aren't being shared in schools, but even the teachers who do try to bring this into the space and are facing repercussions because of it, you know, we want to create other outlets for, you know, LGBTQ Southerners and especially young LGBTQ Southerners to, to learn their own history, to know, like you said, that foundation that we stand on in these moments uh, that we're facing these new, it's, it's amazing. Like, I feel like we take several steps forward and with that progress comes a renewed backlash sometimes. So it's important to highlight these stories so that we can find strength to continue on. And it's been a really beautiful to get to work on this project because those moments when I've started to feel overwhelmed by all of it and to feel really disheartened, I get to find the, the answer and the solution in this work by listening to these stories, by highlighting these stories for other people. I get to be part of the solution and, and we get to be part of the solution. And so I've, I've, really, I've really loved that. Co-curators Samuel Landis and Rachel Garbus. The Out Down South exhibition is on view at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights through October. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series, Speaking of Comedy, today features Atlantic comedian Amanda Marks, Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Time now for our series, Speaking of Comedy, where local comedians share their inspiration and stories from the small stage. My name's Amanda Marks, and I am an Atlanta-based comedian. I was always a very precocious child who never shied away from a stage or a microphone. I used to call into the local radio station, and this was in the 80s when I was probably like eight or nine, and tell them jokes, and they would put it on air. I don't know why, but we recently found some old footage from my brother's bar mitzvah in the mid-80s, and My parents let me take hold of that microphone in the middle of the party and entertain everyone. So I have always been a performer and a comedian at heart. But about eight or nine years ago, my friend convinced me to take a stand-up writing class. And I had tried so many different outlets for performing. And stand-up really intimidated me. And it wasn't the idea of getting up on stage because I do not get stage fright. It was the idea of writing my own material. So after I took this class, we graduated with five minutes of material and performed in front of 300 people. And I just, I loved it. And I was like, this is, this is my thing. This is what I want to do. I loved the idea of the instant gratification of hearing the audience's response and being in control. The performance is solely reliant on me, how I'm performing, what my content is, how my writing is. I like that independence of being in charge. Like my daughter, when she, she's a, she's 13 now, but when she was four, she was like super obsessed with the idea of like eventually having boobies. So I told her, I said, if you eat your broccoli, broccoli will give you boobies. But y'all, that smart ass took one look at me and said, mommy, looks like you only ate half of your broccoli. Y'all, and it's not because my boobs are small. It's just because just one is. My chest is like a gentrified neighborhood. This side of the street has really high property value. This side of the street still has room for growth. The challenges that I've faced getting into the stand-up comedy industry, I think are mainly self-imposed. I put a lot of pressure on myself to do what all the other stand-ups are doing and try and get out and perform at as many open mics as uh, they are, but that's just not in the cards for me. I've got a family and a ton of stuff going on and I can't always get out at night. And there's definitely this pressure that I need to match the amount of time that everyone else is putting into it. And I've had to just come to the conclusion on my own that it's just gonna take me longer to get to where I wanna be. But 
because of that, I try and control as much as I can or control what I can. And so I produce my own shows. I've been, since I started, I'd say like a year into comedy, I started producing my own shows. So I know that that's on the schedule. I know it's happening. I can coordinate with uh, my family schedules. Um, So time has been a big constraint for me. But I'm lucky because my husband's been always super supportive of me pursuing stand-up as well. You know, when I took that stand-up writing class, the best part of it was the teacher just gave us all these different writing assignments and we figured out what we needed to do, what of these tools we wanted to be able to use to write on our own. And I find that my best material just comes from conversations that I'm having naturally with people, whether it's friends at a party or someone at the dinner table or the cashier at Trader Joe's and I make them laugh naturally, I make a note of that. I'm always sending myself emails with joke ideas based on natural conversations I have. Um, I mean, I'm just, I guess, inspired by what's happening around me. I really love being a part of the Atlanta stand-up. I find um, some of my favorite moments aren't just performing, but like the things that happen before and after shows. I actually was on a show recently, and this happens. It just happens when you're a stand-up where sometimes the amount of comedians on the show will outnumber the amount of people who have paid to be audience members (laughs) and it was but I had so much fun all the comedians we everyone sat in the audience we were all just laughing at each other and not just to be nice I think we all thought we were funny you know and it's just Atlanta scene tends to have we have each other's backs comedian Amanda Marks More information about Marx, as well as our entire Speaking Of series, is on our website, wabe.org slash speakingof. The female a cappella quintet from Zimbabwe, Nobuntu, has a style that spans a range from traditional Zimbabwean songs to Afro-jazz to gospel. When they were in Atlanta this past fall, I spoke with two members, Duduzile and Joylin Sibanda. Duduzile began explaining the meaning of the group's name. Nobuntu means mother of humanity. That's a beautiful name. Yes, in our language, the Ndebele language, where we come from, we've come from Bulawayo, the second largest city in Zimbabwe. And the language that's mostly spoken that dominates is Ndebele. So Ndebele, no, stands for mother. And Ubuntu is an umbrella term for everything that's good, love, peace forgiveness and everything that a woman or a mother embraces. So we decided to call ourselves the mothers of Ubuntu, no Ubuntu. Oh, wow. How and when did the group begin? Hi, I'm Jailin. The group Nobuntu began back in 2012 on the 1st of June in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. Would you describe your sound or musical style? Our sound is rooted mostly on our tradition, our traditional music, of which most of it is still undiscovered. But uh, we know that it's been passed to us from generation to generation. We have Shona origins, Heather and Zainele Ashona, from the Shona tribe, uh, and the rest of us are from the Ndebele tribe. So we have a fusion of both those traditions alongside with more 
other tribes that come from the, the, the Matebeleland region where we come from in Zimbabwe. So our sign, sound is mostly traditional music, is based on the traditional music and new compositions that we've uh, composed over the years. But uh, we are inspired more by our traditional music. Let's talk about a couple of your songs. For example, Kula and Narini. Am I saying it right? Is it Kula or Kula? Kula. 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 Yes. Kula and Narini. Uh What do those songs address? Kula means sing. So in this song, we are saying sing when you are sad, sing when you are happy, sing when you're confused, sing anytime because music gives you peace and music brings love and everything, you know, in life that anyone, music connects people. So in a song, Ula, we are just saying, you know, music, you can listen or sing to music any day, any time, whether you're in office, whether you're at work, whether you are, you know, in army, whether you are at war, whether you are, you know, music always bring you peace in your heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So music is good for your soul at the oh, end yes. of the day. Yes. And Narini? And Narini. Narini means forever. So in Narini we talks we talk about love. That love is there forever. Lasts, yeah, lasts forever yeah. and ever and ever. Love doesn't die mm. at the end of the day. <laughs> And it quotes the, the verses from Psalm. Psalm where we say love is patient, love is kind. In, in our own language, of course. So it quotes some of the verses in the psalm, uh-huh. the Bible. How does your music convey the importance of social change? Well, we, we, we are young, but we, we, we sing mostly music that has been passed down on us. So we touch on, even if, we sing traditional music. We touch on issues that happen every day. Duduzile and Joylin Simbanda of the a cappella quintet Nobuntu. More information about the musical group is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment... Music contributor Von Phoenix stops by with this month's edition of Punk Black to Go. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. It's time to check in with City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix. Vaughn is the president and co-founder of Atlanta's cultural and media phenomenon Punk Black. And he joins us monthly to highlight artists of color performing in a variety of musical arenas, many of which break stereotypes and expectations. Here's Vaughn Phoenix with this month's edition of Punk Black To Go. 
Greetings, my friends. I'm City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix, and this is Punk Black To Go. For the unfamiliar, Punk Black is a media network that features people of color in the rock, art, cosplay, and nerd lore communities. Let's start off a little Punk Black story. Since we'll be including music from a founder of Punk Black today, I kind of like to just talk about, you know, the beginnings of Punk Black. So Punk Black's founders are four people, myself, Vaughn Phoenix, Arcade Colt, Jamie Cornelia, and Karis Ellison. Uh, we started Punk Black May 22nd of 2015. We had, had no idea what we were doing. We did not know if it was going to be like what it is now. We, we, we had no intention of that. We wanted to throw one house party. And, and that's how Punk Black started from the idea of one house party. We did it. People really, really loved it. We got such a great response. And we we're like, oh, my God, this is something we need to keep doing. Um, this is good for the community. This is good for us. This is good for our bands and our artists. This is just good for everybody. So we kept doing it. And Punk Black is form to what it is now. I kind of just wanted to go in on all the founders and just let you know um, what we're all doing right now. So of course, you know me, I'm Vaughn Phoenix. Um, I run Punk Black currently. And um, I do a little bit of everything from graphic design to the website to just like batting off general nonsense. So to a little bit of everything. We have Arcade Cole who also does graphic design. He does, you know, he's a DJ. Um, when Jamie Cornelia was with us, um, they were a host at Punk Black. They also help out with graphic design and like we're just good in art directions. Jamie Cornelia is doing some really, really crazy dope stuff right now. Multiple shows. Um, her graphic design is amazing. I'm trying to catch up with her. <laughs> Lastly, but certainly not least, we have Karis Ellison, who is an amazing, talented person. She does multiple things, um, whether it's like graphic design or you know, art direction. And she's an amazing bartender on the Atlanta scene. You might have seen her at the Lawrence or other bars. Um, if you haven't, you should definitely check her out. Cocktails are amazing. Super dope. So again, you know, me, myself, Von Phoenix, Arcade Cole, Jamie Cornelia, and Carlos Ellison. Not all of us are with Punk Black currently, but we all started it and we're all the reason why Punk Black is what it is today. But enough of that. Let's get to some bands. Let's start off first with Jamie Cornelia. And like I said, we're going to start out with some founders. She's a multi-talented person. She's a multi-genre person as well, like blending hip-hop with alternative with rock. And today's song is actually pop punk. Super bumping, good to get your day started, and good to start off this list. So without further ado, this is City Full of Stars by Jamie Cornelia. Focus on my passions, I'll be great, oh. Go down to the city, see the stars at night. Maybe for a moment I forget my Start to glisten under all these lights Look into your eyes because they always shine I took two shots, then I took two more shots Then I took two more shots, and I'm hoping I forget I got moon rocks, something different in my pop plug Knowing I'm a shop, spend it all just to forget I don't want this night to end Thanking God I still have friends Can I just that was City Full of Stars by Jamie Cornelia. Jamie Cornelia can be found on Instagram at Jamie Cornelia. That's J-A-M-E-E-C-O-R-N-E-L-I-A, Jamie Cornelia. Next up, we have Dregs. Dregs was actually recommended to me by multiple people. And Dregs, I love them immediately. They remind me of music that would be on the Jet Set Radio Future soundtrack. Jet Set Radio Future was an inline skating graffiti game based in the future. The skates jump on top of buildings and like skate on power lines. Reminded me of Air Gear and anime that you guys should definitely peep. Great game, great soundtrack. And Dregs would fit on there completely. Especially this song, Sister. I honestly hope the Jet Set Radio Future makes a second sequel or a second game and Dregs is on it. I will petition for it. I will sign it a million times. Enough of me going on about it. This song is called Sister by Dregs. That was Sister by Dregs. Dregs can be found on Instagram at DregsATX. That's D-R-E-G-S-A-T-X. 
Last up, but certainly not least, we have ATL's own Dead Cassettes. Dead Cassettes is a super, super groovy duo, great vocals. Uh, reminds me of like the 80s versus Molecat Doma. And Molecat Doma is along the lines of industrial punk. Dead Cassettes have that groove that goes along with Molecat Doma, that sort of <laughs> groove, but with 80s vocals-ish and a sort of like modern rock undertone. They blend a lot of different genres and skills together. Great band and great live, which is saying a lot because a lot of bands would be great on record, but not great live. And then some bands will be great live and not on record. And this band is both. I've personally been bumping this song for the last five or six hours since I was like, okay, what deck is set song am I going to do? I know you're probably going to be bumping it for the next six days. <laughs> so without further ado, here is Ghost Lovers by Dead Cassettes. That was Ghost Lovers by Dead Cassettes. Dead Cassettes can be found on Instagram at dead.cassettes. Well, my friends, that's all I have for you this month. Thank you so much for listening. More information about the bands mentioned today is available on wab.org slash citylights and of course, punkblack.com. For WAB City Lights, I'm Vaughn Phoenix. Please be safe out there and be kind to each other. Music contributor Vaughn Phoenix and our series Punk Black To Go. More information about the bands Vaughn mentioned today is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Matt Paxton, host of the PBS series Legacy List, joins us with more advice on how to declutter our lives. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation about the Out Down South exhibition, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. And we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts.
WABE.